The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. I'm Will Appleton with an episode from the Lawfare Archive for November 25th, 2022. Yesterday's Thanksgiving holiday was an opportunity for Americans to celebrate and give thanks. The holiday also invokes a complicated imperialist chapter in U.S. history. For today's archive episode, I picked an episode from May 2020. In the episode, David Priest sat down with Daniel Immervar, an associate professor of history at Northwestern University, to discuss the United States imperial history. Priest and Immervar spoke about the famous insular cases, what the Constitution has to say about lands west of the original 13 colonies, the role of the Guano Islands in U.S. history, and more. I'm David Priest, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 2nd, 2020. Most of us don't think of United States history as an imperial history, but the facts are there. The law and policy surrounding westward expansion, off-continent acquisitions, and a worldwide network of hundreds of bases reveal much about how and why the United States grew as it did. Last month, I spoke with Daniel Immervar, Associate Professor of History at Northwestern University and author of How to Hide an Empire, about everything from what the Constitution said about lands west of the 13 colonies, to the critical role of Guano Islands in U.S. history, to the famous insular cases, to how military access agreements and long-term leases help the United States avoid a truly territorial empire. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 2nd, Law, Policy, and Empire with Daniel Immervar. Let's start with Pearl Harbor in what was then not yet the state of Hawaii on December 7th, 1941, the Japanese attack there, of course. But within hours, there were Japanese attacks on other U.S. possessions across the Pacific from the Philippines to Guam to Midway. What was interesting, Daniel, about the reactions to those attacks, especially the reaction from Franklin Roosevelt himself? Well, first of all, I just want to point something out. People didn't really know how to talk about that when the event happened. Uh, It was happening in a lot of places at once, not just in U.S. possessions, but in British ones as well. And you can see early newspapers fumbling to figure out how to name the event. Uh, So they'll say, you know, the Japanese attacked Guam and Hawaii, or Japanese attacked Hawaii and the Philippines. 
And that's kind of an interesting question when it gets to FDR's famous date, which will live in infamy speech, because he has that question too. How do you describe the event? The, the phrase that we use, and you just used, Pearl Harbor, no one was using that at the time. That was not the name of an event. It was the name of a naval base. But no one said, yesterday, Pearl Harbor happened. That's, that's a, a term that we have that they didn't. So, um, you know, Eleanor Roosevelt had described the event as an attack on Hawaii and the Philippines. And the early drafts of FDR's speech described it that way, too. What's interesting is that, and we have this because we have the physical drafts of the speech, mm. FDR crossed out prominent references to the Philippines, even though the military damage done there was as great as had been done in Hawaii. And he, he, did, he made the speech all about Hawaii. And that's a really interesting question. Why did he do that? Even Hawaii. though the legal status was the same, Hawaii and the Philippines were both, what, possessions, territories, but clearly not states. That's right. They're both territories. Now, they're slightly different flavors of territories. Hawaii was an incorporated territory. The Philippines was an unincorporated territory. But there's no indication that that was part of the logic. Uh, my sense is that FDR just worried that the Philippines seemed too foreign for his audience to care about. He, you know, Because he had to establish that Japan had attacked the United States of America. And if people in his audience thought the Philippines that's not the United States of America, uh, then the speech doesn't work. And in fact, you can see this because one of the last edits he makes to the speech uh, is he's worried about Hawaii, whether that's going to count as the United States of America. Right. So he changes the speech so that it, it, he, he initially had it so that the attack was happening at the uh, island of Oahu, which is in Hawaii. And at the very last moment, he changed it so that it was happening at the American island of Oahu. <laughs> you know, just driving home the point that that for this speech to work, Hawaii has to be something that maybe not everyone was convinced it was, which is the United States. So what does this tell us overall about U.S. perceptions of its territories in 1940, which I think more than one in eight people in the United States were in one of these overseas territories at the time? What, what does it say about the public perception of overseas territory? Yeah, I think that question of are these places in or out of the United States that came up so dramatically as FDR is penning his speech? I think that's a question that sort of haunts U.S. history. And, and at the heart of it is a question of who belongs, right? Who's really part of the United States? We don't always talk about this when we talk about U.S. history. We know that, of course, the United States has dominant populations and subordinated populations within it. But it's also really important to recognize that the United States has subordinated places, places that are territories, not states, overseas territories that have only had limited standing within the United States. And the reason they've only had limited standing is that people living in the core, the continental United States, have been kind of unsure whether to think of them as truly American or as truly part of the country or not. Yeah. I want to go back a few steps here. You tell a story really in three acts. First, you talk about the westward expansion of the United States, in a sense, the the seed of empire. Then you talk about, in a second act, the off-continent empire, which led to things like the Philippines and the Hawaii even being an issue. And then third, you talk about an act where, in fact, the United States distanced itself from owning territory and retreated from empire. So let's, let's take those in order, Daniel. Let's start with the westward expansion. Talk about the Constitution and the evolving laws here. What did the Constitution say about the U.S. lands west of the 13 colonies? Not a lot. 
But an important thing to recognize is that there are those lands. You know, the name of the country is the United States of America. But from day one, from the day when the treaty granting the United States independence from Britain was ratified, that was an inaccurate name. And the reason it was inaccurate was that part of the land was not states. It was territory. It was public land owned by the federal government uh, and owned in a different kind of way and having a different kind of status. Uh, pretty quickly after the signing of the Constitution, the amount of that land was about 45% of the total land area of the country. And yet what's really interesting about the Constitution is, although it goes into great depth about you know presidential succession and all that kind of thing, it doesn't actually tell you how this huge part of the country's land is supposed to be governed, except that Congress is going to have the power to govern it. And so right from the start, you have in some ways a bifurcated country with two kinds of space, state space and territorial space. And you're not exactly sure what's going to happen in that territorial space. So talk uh, just a little bit about the Northwest Ordinance and how the movement westward kind of almost created law on the ground as the, the settlers moved that direction. Yeah. So the Northwest Ordinance of 1787 is just, you know, one of those sort of textbook classics. Uh, it's a law that governed part of how that territory was supposed to be overseen. Um, and, and the pattern has got sort of moved to other, other territories. Uh, what we usually say about the Northwest Ordinance is that it was an admirably democratic law because rather than holding the territories in perpetual subjugation, uh, it provided a process by which they could be elevated to states and then specified that once they became states, they would be states on equal footing with the existing states. Uh, and so there are a series of population thresholds and and the territory goes through various forms of government as it you know hits those population thresholds. I think two things that struck me and I think are worth noting about that. Uh, is that, first of all, there's no automatic procession through the thresholds that, you know, there are population numbers, but, you know, Congress has the power to hold states back uh, or hold territories back from becoming states, as indeed it did. And it has the power to advance them, as indeed it also did. Um, the other thing to notice is that before territories become states, they have limited dem democratic rights. They have appointed governments, not elected governments at first. Uh, and those appointed governments, you know, pretty much can do what they want. And at various points in U.S. jurisprudence, um, the Supreme Court has explained or justices have, have sort of, you know, gone on to recount the ways in which uh, the people living in the territories really don't have the same rights as citizens who live in the states. Mm. This came to a head most often in our history books and in reality with law and policy towards Native Americans. I think the Washington administration first signed a treaty with the Cherokees, if I'm right, dangling the prospect of civilized Cherokees joining the U.S. as citizens. But tell us about First of all, how Georgia felt about that as they started encroaching upon Cherokee lands. And, and then what happened with that relationship with various Native Americans? Yeah, so the important thing to recognize is the reason that territories are a different kind of political space is not just because it takes a little bit of time to you know organize the voting mechanism. Um, the reason they're like that is that people in the East had deep suspicion of the people who were living in the West or the Western part of the United States. And by the people living in the West, I mean both the white settlers who were seen as sort of rude and you know unruly uh, from the perspective of men like Washington, but the huge portions uh, uh, proportion of Native Americans who lived in that land. These territories had people in them. They just didn't have as many white people in them and certainly didn't have as many white people who lived their lives like George Washington. So at first, the real question was, 
how do you deal with these kinds of spaces? And partly because native polities were so powerful um, in the 18th century, a lot of times, you know, from the perspective of the Eastern government, the best way to deal with na strong native polities was to, you know, give them rights and to sort of defer to them to some degree. The thing that changed that is that the white population just grew in a historically unprecedented way. Mm -hmm. I mean, no one had ever seen a population grow that large. It easily outstripped the population growth in Europe uh, and certainly swamped the populations of the native populations in North America, which were declining at the time. And the result is that that just changed the standing of Native Americans within the U.S. polity. And you could see that. I mean, it kind of happened all over. But but what you're mentioning is is in Georgia, where particularly because of the discovery of, of gold, white settlers just pushed really hard on Cherokee land, not just Cherokee land, but but on Cherokee land. And you can see just in a, a matter of years um, how Cherokees who'd been you know fairly well established within uh, the U.S. polity, and in fact, they had their own constitution and newspaper and all that kind of stuff, uh, were just radically and, and, and quickly dispossessed and, and pushed, along with other native polities, uh, into a kind of large and nebulously defined land called Indian Territory, the point of which was it, it lay further to the west than whites would be, and it would be sort of an all-Indian space. Didn't last very long, and eventually got sort of whittled down into nothing. And uh, Andrew Jackson played a role here, too. He certainly has a whole separate history involving Native Americans. But didn't didn't he propose an actual admittance of a state to the Union governed by some confederacy of Indian polities? Yeah, Western territory. So Andrew Jackson is interesting because on the one hand, he was a sort of voracious, you know, settler and land speculator mm -hmm. uh, and, and was certainly on the side of how white settlement. On the other hand, you know, as the president, he also has to deal with the, you know, the difficulties of that, right? He can't just sort of wave a wand and, and there will be no more native polities on the land. So uh, the Indian Removal Act that uh, is passed during Jackson's presidency is a way for Jackson to square the circle. On the one hand, to clear lands that is east of the Mississippi for uh, white use, but also in order to get that, he has to make serious offers of land west of the Mississippi. Uh, and there's going to be questions about what the status of that land will be. There is a really intriguing moment in the 1830s where the Jackson administration ends up not only delineating a huge part of the country, like 40 percent of the country or something like that, as Indian territory, uh, but also really proposing and proposing as far as I can tell with, you know, genuine sincerity, uh, that the southern portion of that land, the portion in which um, Cherokees live, but also a number of other peoples live, could actually be admitted as a state to the Union. It is a territory, and perhaps like other territories, it could also be a state. Uh, and so that's just one moment in this sort of shifting relations between Washington and native polities and this kind of nebulously defined land called Indian territory. Yeah, I suspect that one of the reasons that this didn't come about, it intersects with that other big issue across the 19th century in so many ways of of slavery. What were the attitudes of the different regions of the United States and different prominent personalities about the very idea of having a Native American majority population state? Yeah, so there are two objections to that. Uh, and you can kind of see them coming from different parts of the U.S. political tradition. One objection is that, whoa, 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 wait a minute, if there's a uh, Native American state or even just a territory, like an organized territory, mm -hmm. 
it's not going to have the same rights as the white states, is it? I mean, no one seems to assume that. So if it doesn't, then what does that make the United States, right? We had thought, I'm ventriloquizing here, we had thought that the United States was a republic where all the states and all the parts of it were on equal footing. But if we're talking about forthrightly having, you know, Indian sort of territories or something like that, we're going to have to talk about a differentiated legal space. And that makes the United States not a republic. That makes it forthrightly on paper an empire. That was something people were uncomfortable with. Now, of course, there already were territories, but this would seem to sort of make that a more permanent part of the political system. So that was one concern. The other concern, uh, and this came largely from the uh, slaveholding South, is that if there was any kind of organized government in Indian territory that involved Indian representatives, well, you know, they'd have seats in Congress, they'd have desks in the Capitol, just like the white representatives. That was a threat to white supremacy and a sort of bank shot threat to, you know, white rule over blacks, uh, especially in the South. So, so that was another reason why um, some members of Congress were really uncomfortable with the prospect. And during this time and, and moving forward as well, there there were proposals for actual states. There were initiatives for what? Lincoln, West Dakota, Montezuma, things that clearly aren't states now, but eventually that territory did get whittled down and down from all directions until essentially it became the state of Oklahoma, right? Yeah. So, I mean, first of all, you know, you think that there's just this automatic process by which territories become states. The answer is there's all kinds of attempts to promote territories to states from people, from territorial inhabitants that are just blocked by Congress. And so you've just named some of the more colorful names of, of, you know, states in the making that never were. Uh, But one of the more intriguing ones is, so at first Indian territory was also called Indian country was just huge. It was just a large part of the country west of the Mississippi. Uh, The more white settlement happened, the more the government shipped away at that and shrunk it down to the point where it became, it had the borders of current day Oklahoma. Uh, And at that moment, there's a kind of last ditch effort on the part of a number of Indian groups within Indian territory to, and they're just thinking, we're going to completely lose our land. Right. We're going to completely lose any kind of all Indian zone. And the best way to protect it uh, is to become an Indian majority state. So they apply for statehood or they call a convention that will uh, allow them to apply for statehood. And the state will be called Sequoia, um, which is named after a a prominent sort of um, Cherokee silversmith who designed uh, syllabary for the Cherokee language. Mm -hmm. And um, and Congress swats it down. Congress swats it down and then it merges uh, what would have been Sequoia with a already sort of white majority uh, territory called Oklahoma, merges them into a single territory called Oklahoma. And the point of this is that now that new Oklahoma is white majority, and mm. that's the basis upon which it gets admitted to the union as a state. Wow. The, the, the history here is is amazing that there were, in a sense, the fast track. There were the states that clearly had the settlers moving in and moved to statehood relatively quickly in that post-revolutionary war, what, three or four decades. Uh, but then some others that just dragged on and on because of these larger cultural issues. Yeah. So, I mean, California, it's like two years, right? I mean, it's because of the gold rush. There's all these white settlers coming in. But um, I crunched the numbers and the average time from annexation of lands to the admission of that land as a state in the United States is 45 years, Whoa. which means that for every California, there's like an outlier on the other way on the other side. And Oklahoma is a, a great example because it had been formerly Indian territory. Uh, Oklahoma, that that land of Oklahoma is part of the United States for more than a century before it becomes a state. So that means that that land under various names is a territory of the United States for longer than 
the French hold Indochina mm. longer than the Belgians and King Leopold hold the Congo. I mean, this is like a, like it's more than a century of this, you know, native inhabited land being subordinated political space before enough whites come in that they can make it a state. So that moved on, however, to what you call your second act, the off continent empire. How did batshit and bird shit drive U.S. overseas expansion? Well, look, I just want to be clear. You know, I'm not a batshit historian. I really focus on the bird shit, <laughs> and I'm happy to get into that. It's yeah, good so to specialize. It really, I mean, you know, the literature is so broad, you, you really can't handle them both at the same time. Um, so the, the story that we normally tell is we know that the United States didn't always have the borders that we think of when we imagine the mental map. And it turns out that, you know, in the 18th century, it was much smaller, and it expands. There's a series of wars and annexations. Uh, and it's it's not until 1854, with the ratification of the Gadsden Purchase, that the United States has the shape that we think of it having. The thing that people don't always acknowledge is that that familiar shape, that sort of outline, is only accurate for three years of U.S. history. That's the map for three years. And the reason is that in 1857, um, the United States starts annexing territory overseas. And the first set of territories that it annexes are uh, islands in the Caribbean and the Pacific, ultimately uh, nearly 100 of them. And they're uninhabited islands. uh, And what is so valuable about them, why the United States is sort of rushing to claim all these islands, is that they have on them guano, which is uh, bird droppings. Uh, So these are basically small islands that are just covered in birds uh, and the birds, you know, eat anchovies and other things from, from the ocean. And then they uh, get back on the Island and, and, and they do their business there. And the islands just, just pile up and then sort of dry in the sun with nitrate rich bird droppings, uh, which when used as fertilizer is actually a really powerful and important fertilizer. And the United States at this time is having an agricultural crisis. So getting that fertilizer, I mean, this is like the gold rush just, you know, for white gold, which is what they called it. Guano. And am I right that by, what, the late 1800s, the United States possessed, what, 80, 90 of these various islands? 94 overall. So it's nearly 100 by, I think, 1902 is the final year of annexation. But it all happens in the second half of the 19th century. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, look, you might not think that these islands are that important, but there's two ways in which they matter. Uh, First of all, they create some interesting legal issues for the United States. So Mm -hmm. the question is, you know, is the United States allowed to do this? Because thus far, the United States had not expanded into the oceans. It had purchased Alaska in 1867, although that's happening while the Guano Islands are also happening. But it, you know, it, it had always had contiguous expansion. Uh, so can it just take far off islands uh, in the Pacific? So that becomes a legal question. And the Supreme Court has to consider it. What's the status of those islands? And ultimately, the answer is yes, the United States is allowed to do that. Uh, and that becomes the legal basis for a much larger and much more populous uh, overseas empire, a colonial empire. The other thing that's kind of interesting about them is that, you know, they're useful for guano. Once the guano is scraped clean, the United States doesn't really care about these uninhabited islands. But starting in the 30s, it starts to care about them again, because it turns out that the same thing that make those islands really good nesting spots for birds, um, also make them good landing spots for planes. And World War II is fought for the United States in and over the Guano Island. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. 
Hey, hey, it's Kip Bodner, CMO of HubSpot. Join me and my co-host, Kieran Flanagan, CMO over at Zapier, on Marketing Against a Grain. We're not the typical regurgitated Twitter threads. These are takes from us, marketing leaders about what we're doing and what we're learning from our peers and what's working in the market and how you can apply them to your business. Everything you need to grow a modern business and have a strategy that is fit for growth in today's changing economy. Listen to our podcast, Marketing Against the Grain, wherever you get your podcasts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day in your life, what would you do with it? Would you go for a run? Would you sleep in? Would you read? Would you go hang out with a friend? A lot of us spend time wishing we had more time. You actually can create more time for yourself. It's by figuring out what's important to you, making that a priority, and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills it can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And delete me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. 
It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web, and in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted, and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code lawfare20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 code lawfare 20. Yeah. Well, we, we missed a step here. Let's, let's talk about a key inflection point before we uh, move forward. 1898. Suddenly the United States is drawn into uh, virtually a global war taking place in separate hemispheres. Talk about that a little bit. How did the Spanish American war and its outcome really set the stage for 20th century America? Yeah, I'm not sure I would quite say it is drawn into the war as much as it jumps headfirst into the war. Uh, Fair point. point. uh, The assistant secretary of the Navy, I mean, he's not the only one, but uh, Teddy Roosevelt is doing everything he can to get the United States involved in this war. So um, Spain is fighting basically a series of wars between its, you know, it's having a colonial crisis. So it's fighting wars in Cuba, it's fighting wars in the Philippines, it's facing some resistance in Puerto Rico, its empire is ultimately falling apart. uh, And imperialists like Teddy Roosevelt are kind of eager for the United States to get in there, partly because they hope that the United States can can acquire some imperial territory. Uh, And so it's it's a little weird what happens. On the one hand, the United States enters on the sides of uh, Spain's rebels, so Cubans, Filipinos. On the idea that it's going to liberate them, that it's going to fight along, and it does fight alongside them against Spain. Uh, But then as that moment of liberation comes, um, the United States ends up occupying Cuba. Eventually it it, it leaves and Cuba becomes sort of semi-independent. But it also outright annexes uh, from Spain, uh, the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Guam. And then just sort of in an Fit of imperial enthusiasm. Uh, at the same moment, uh, it also uh, takes uh, Hawaii, the non-Spanish lands of uh, Hawaii and um, American Samoa. Mm-hmm. Now, on the surface, that seems strange because Cuba, there had been voices back to the early 1800s in American politics looking at Cuba and salivating. And yet 
we just occupied Cuba and did not move it towards a more formal relationship. Whereas the far off Philippines that back then, probably one in what, 10,000 Americans could even find on an early globe, would even know where it was. We ended up annexing the Philippines. What was the issue there that led the Philippines to a very different trajectory than Cuba? I think this is a moment of real contingency. I mean, I can imagine a number of different ways that 1898 and 1899 go differently, such that the United States ends up with a very differently shaped empire. Uh, so Cuba is kind of explicable in this way, uh, because everyone had been talking about Cuba, just as you say, and everyone had been, it also meant that everyone had been arguing about it. And so the imperialists were interested in it, but the anti-imperialists were interested in not having it. So they managed to pass a law that said, okay, if the United States goes to war with Spain, it cannot, no, 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 it cannot take Cuba. Uh, so that was the way that the anti-imperialists sort of mm. allowed themselves to to participate in this war was was with, with the proviso that the war could not result in the annexation of Cuba, which is what stopped the U.S. from annexing Cuba. Uh, and yeah, but but, you know, people are not thinking about the Philippines because basically the thing that everyone's paying attention to is Spain's war in Cuba. Meanwhile, Spain is also fighting a war in the Philippines. But the guy who really cares about that is Teddy Roosevelt. And so there's this kind of unbelievable moment where. Teddy Roosevelt is the assistant secretary of the Navy, not known to be the most powerful position in U.S. government. I mean, you know, you have some power, but not a lot. But one thing that Roosevelt grasps, uh, and this is all in the lead up to the war, uh, is that when his boss is not there, technically that makes Roosevelt the acting secretary of the Navy. Right. And so, you know, what does it mean for the boss not to be there? I don't know. Presumably that means like the boss is infirm or something like that. Teddy Roosevelt has a charitable to himself understanding of this. So there's a moment when his boss just goes out for the afternoon and Teddy Roosevelt's like, well, I, I guess I am now the uh, acting secretary of the Navy. And he just issues orders like all of it, like, you know, fill your, you know, uh, uh, fill your reserves with coal, uh, you know, dispatch uh, the Asiatic fleet uh, to Hong Kong. Like, like he's setting the groundwork for a um, transoceanic war on the understanding that if war with Spain breaks out, as it looks like it's very likely to do for the United States, he wants that war to include uh, the invasion of the Philippines. And and by the time you know people see what he's done, it's kind of awkward to stick the toothpaste back in the tube like that would look weak. Uh, so they just let the order stand, and 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 that means that when the United States does go to war with Cuba, it also invades you know, attacks Spain and the Philippines. And it wins. In fact, that's the first place that engages Spain, uh, sinks the Spanish fleet, and suddenly the United States has the opportunity to take the Philippines, which it does. Fascinating compared to today with some acting secretaries or acting officials at lower levels in place for months, even a year. And when Teddy had the opportunity, even though he had been warned by his boss, don't do anything while I'm away for a few hours, look at what he did in his acting role. Deep state Teddy. Yeah, that's right. Let's, uh, before we move on to your, your third act, let's focus for a few minutes on the insular cases in 1901. How did they arise and with what result? Yeah, so actually there are a set of cases. The first ones are in 1901, but then they go on, and depending mm -hmm. on how you count, they go into the 1920s. Uh, but the big question, once the United States has not just claims you know, Alaska, not just taken a series of uninhabited guano islands, but has a huge and populous empire, it is no longer possible for constitutional questions to just sort of get swept under the rug. So there has to be some kind of disposition or uh, some kind of ruling about 
what to do or how to think about these territories within the frame of the Constitution. Uh, and so there's a series of cases, and, and most of them at first are, de are decided 5-4. They're highly uh, controversial, and there's also a lot of um, newspaper coverage, which, which itself is, you know, people are arguing back and forth. But basically, the question is, is the United States allowed to be an empire? I mean, the guano Act, Guano Island Act had already sort of kind of established that, uh, but they argue it out. And, and what they come up with is, is something called the incorporation doctrine. So the idea is that, yes, the United States takes territories, and that's been part of its history, but there's different kinds of territories, uh, and that all of the territories that the United States claims from Spain, including the Philippines, which is where the majority of the U.S. colonial subjects live by far, those are a new and different and previously unannounced kind of territory. They are unincorporated territories. Uh, and what that means is that, so uh, the Constitution, this is how the, one of the justices puts it, the Constitution is the law of the land, but the unincorporated territories are not actually part of the land. So the Constitution does not automatically extend to them. Federal law doesn't automatically extend to them. They are in a legally separate and subordinated zone where different kinds of things will happen. It is, is done by the same court that decides Plessy versus Ferguson. So it's the same, right. you know, which right. divides the country, you know, racially into different administrative zones. Uh, this is dividing the country into different legal zones with the difference that uh, unlike Plessy versus Ferguson, this this ruling still are still on the books, right? Oh, yeah. yeah, there's five inhabited territories of the United States today. Over three million people live in them. And all of those uh, territories are unincorporated. And Does that mean no representation, no voting rights for president, no legal rights other than what's granted to them by Washington? Well, so just being a territory means that you can't vote for the president and you mm -hmm. don't get voting representative in Congress. So that doesn't even matter what legal flavor of territory you are. But being an unincorporated territory means that you also are not automatically covered by the Constitution. So, for example, uh, I'm a U.S. citizen uh, and I live in Chicago. If I were to travel to San Juan in Puerto Rico, I would, by virtue of setting foot down there, lose the constitutional right to trial by jury. And then I would regain it when I came back to Chicago because the United States is a differentiated legal space and the constitutional right to trial by jury does not extend throughout it. On the surface, at least, you would think that over the decades that having some of these territories, and I'll take the Philippines as the example because so many Americans did go there, especially senior military leaders of the next generation. They basically grew up in the Philippines fighting the war there. But the Philippines didn't really take off in the U.S. popular interest. I think, what, 30 years or so after we took over the Philippines, the citations in the New York Times were half as likely for the Philippines as they were for Poland or Brazil. And even countries like Albania got more appearances than places like Alaska and Hawaii, much less the Philippines. Talk a little bit about that. What factors prompted what you call the third act where we retreated from territory-based empire. Was this change in attitude, this lack of caring about the Philippines part of it? Well, yeah, I mean, I think this is the weird thing about the U.S. empire. Um, so my book is called How to Hide an Empire, and that's a nod to the fact that one of the things that makes the U.S. empire distinct is not that, I mean, sometimes we say that the U.S. is distinct because it's a great power that never had any interest in colonizing. Well, that's just not true. I mean, you know, it take, took half of Mexico, you know, colonized these sort of large overseas uh, lands. By 1940, uh, I think you already said, one out of eight people who live in the United States are colonized, which means that if you live in the United States at that time, you are more likely to be colonized than you are to be black, more mm -hmm. likely to be colonized than you are to be an immigrant. The United States has a substantial empire. And, you know, at that time, like 20 million people live in it. 
what's interesting about the United States is that it the mainland doesn't seem to have a lot of cultural sort of acknowledgement of the territories. I think that's still true today. And so you get this thing where, and I think the Philippine War actually has a lot to do with it. There's uh, a war of pacification after the United States uh, annexes the Philippines. And, and it's just like a bloody and endless war. And it's so exhausting that even imperialists like Teddy Roosevelt just sort of stop talking about this stuff because it's so painful to bring up. And you you get this country that basically just decided, okay, technically we have an empire, but we're still going to talk about ourselves as a republic. We're not going to mention the Philippines very often. We're not going to think really hard about Puerto Rico. We're always going to be a little surprised uh, when anything you know happens that brings these places to the headlines uh, because we're always a little confused that they exist because we still think of ourselves as a republic. Right, right. So what were the other factors, just in a nutshell, that prompted this movement, basically a retreat from territory and a move towards the uh, pointillist empire that we'll talk about in a few minutes? What were the push factors? Yeah, so I think that's another really distinctive thing about the United States' territorial empire is that after World War II, I mean, it doesn't totally unburden itself of colonies. It still has five inhabited territories, but it does really try to put a lot of distance between itself and colonialism. And so why does it do that? And you um, come at this from the perspective of a historian, Daniel, me from a perspective of a political scientist. It's really unusual for a victorious power to willingly, overwhelmingly give up territory, especially its largest possession, in this case, the the Philippines. Yeah, most wars end with the victor getting territory, right? Uh, and, and, and generally, there's a rule. In, I mean, it's not an ironclad rule, but generally, there's a pattern in history in the 19th century and the 18th century, which is that when a country gets more powerful, it gets bigger, right? Like territorial like growth is one of the measurements of power. In fact, that had been a major measurement of the United States' flourishing in the 19th century is its ability to sort of push aside and conquer patches of land from other, you know, both native and European polities. So what's really interesting is that after World War II, the United States shrinks. Uh, it, it gets rid of its largest colony without having to fight a war over it, without losing that territory to anyone in, in battle. And it, it, you know, it makes states of two of its other large territories, Hawaii and Alaska, tries to kind of resolve Puerto Rico's colonial situation, it seems like it's it's running away from colonialism as fast as possible. And one reason is that there is a global revolt against empire that is, you know, was already going in, you know, the late 19th century and the early 20th century, but has reached a fever pitch by the middle of the 20th century. We're talking, you know, uh, anti-colonial movements, national movements that are armed, where, you know, people have armies and are sort of, you know, trying to take over and and violently you know, overthrow colonial governments. And the United States is sort of seeking a foothold, particularly in Asia, and wants to get on the right side of that, wants to, you know, doesn't want to be seen as, you know, another imperialist, wants to distinguish itself, and so ends up kind of deferring to uh, the anti-colonial push, both happening sort of all over the world, but also happening within its own colonies. Right. And you pair that with the rise of this pointillist empire, the third act, where there's a series of I don't know what you'd call them, dozens or hundreds of bases or overseas facilities that the United States in the late 20th century no longer needed to have large amounts of territory because if it had an airstrip in the middle of the Indian Ocean and a few airstrips in the Pacific Ocean and landing rights in a few strategically placed countries, it had most of the benefits of a global empire without most of the burdens. Yeah. So what the United States does is it accommodates anti-colonialism, not by just not having territory, but by figuring out that it can actually do much of what it would have wanted to do with colonies just with dots. 
so basically the, the you know metaphor I have is that you know standing before the map of the world, the United States puts down the imperialist paint roller and picks up the pointless brush. So it just needs you know little enclaves, dots. You, you said dozens. It's always been hundreds since since yeah. 1945. Uh, right now we think that the United States has some 800 overseas military bases. It's easy, it's certainly more than 500 because the Pentagon will admit to 500, and we know that many. It also has many secret bases uh, beyond that, appropriately so. You know, it's kind. I mean, and and that's like there's never been an empire that looked like that territorially. I mean, there've been coaling stations and that kind of thing, but but if you just look at a map of the world and you see all of the places where the United States has these little dots, it's really incredible. And if you take every other country that is not the United States uh, today and you add up all of their overseas bases, some of them have them. You know, you you basically get thirty overseas bases. Mm. Whereas if you take all the United States' overseas bases. It's, you know, it's about 800. I mean, that's a huge difference. Wow. Now, there is some divergence here that up to this point, when you're talking about the United States as an empire, it's about westward expansion. It is about sovereignty over a chunk of territory. Then it's about empire overseas, which is about possessing islands and administering them. But many of these bases and facilities, whether you're talking about in uh, Dahran, Saudi Arabia, or you're talking about others... You're often talking about facilities based on long-term leases or some treaty basis for cooperation, but it's it's not U.S. full sovereignty. Why do you call them de facto empire, and how does that nuance matter? Yeah, um, that's right, and I think a really important part of that for the United States is that these, this, this is land that the United States controls and has some jurisdiction over but is not U.S. territory, is not annexed to the United States in a way that Hawaii had been. You know, I think it's important to, you know, one option is you could just sort of round all that down to zero. Like, even if you take all of the acreage, you know, that the United States has in these bases and you sort of mash it all together, you get an area that's roughly the size of Houston. So we are not talking a lot about a lot of square miles here. And, And so it's possible to just think, yeah, don't really worry about that. And as as you say, it's not even technically annexed to the United States. It's just leased. You know, that sounds like a pretty soft kind of empire if it's empire. Uh, So why emphasize it? First, uh, two reasons. One is that I think it's enormously consequential to the United States. Uh, Those bases matter. They matter to the U.S. military and they matter to other people, like the people who live in countries that have bases in them end up thinking about those bases a lot. And then I try to sort of describe some of the foreign relations that emanate from the bases. The other reason that the bases matter is that they there's such clear replacements for colonies. Uh, a lot of times you can just see a function that would you normally would have required a colony to do. But because of new developments in technology, the United States can do it with a base. So to just think. Uh, you know, the United States used to have a larger empire and then it kind of that empire shrunk and, and the age of empire is over is, is to miss a really important continuity uh, that uh, it's not that the uh, U.S. goes from having a larger colonial empire to a, a smaller one. It's that the United States goes from having an intensive colonial empire to having a sort of one that is less intensive, but more extensive because it's happening sort of globally and, and, and throughout the world. So you would say that the subtle but important distinction between full sovereignty and access agreements, let's say, actually masks the idea of the empire, because if in fact there weren't those access agreements and long-term leases, the United States might actually have to have possession of those lands. 
Yeah, no, that's right. I, I don't think those lands are just sort of optional for the United States. I think they really matter uh, to the military and to U.S. power functioning in the way that they currently function. So, yeah, no, those, those bases are, are absolutely important. And the fact that they are leased and not I mean, some of them release some of them. You know, there's a, it's a plurality of, of legal arrangements. Uh, but the fact that a lot of them are are leased in that way is actually a can be a privilege for the United States because it means that they you can do things on non-U.S. territory that you can't do on U.S. territory. Guantanamo Bay is a really clear example of that. The reason that Guantanamo Bay is such a valuable spot of land for the United States or was during the global war on terrorism is that it was a place where people could be detained in a way that they couldn't be detained on U.S. soil. Right. You have the benefit as a historian of being able to talk about what comes next and look at long-term trends and actually have the foundation to do so. You can you can back up your claims. So let's let's go there. What comes next? The United States has evolved from a small country expanding across a continent to taking on global interests and territory to withdrawing from much of that territory and finding a substitute. Technology would seem to change some of that, but of course drones need airstrips to take off from even yep. if they're far away. So what contingencies might evolve here to, to govern where the United States goes with its interests overseas from here on out? So one way you could say is you could say this is really just about power and technology. And the better that the United States gets at technologies, uh, the more it can, you know, be a little loose about its bases and the more its basing structure will shrink because uh, it can move planes faster, more easily, and it doesn't have to have intermediate places to stop and all that kind of thing. But I think there's a political story to tell as well. I think we're living in actually an incredible moment vis-a-vis -vis the United States' territorial empire, which is that it is coming into view in a way that it just wasn't when I started writing this book. Puerto Rico has been in the headlines and, um, you know, the hurricanes have played a big role in that. But I think people are much more aware of the fact that the United States has inhabited territories and it's never really gotten right on the question of empire. I was also shocked at, you know, when Donald Trump emerged onto the political scene, one of the things that he proved willing to talk about, I mean, obviously in a sort of inconsistent way, was military bases and and the possibility that they should should be shuttered. He's often threatening to do that, and you know it, I don't imagine that Trump is going to oversee a, a massive sort of um, closure of, of U.S. military bases. But but just to see that sort of invisible aspect of U.S. power being described and being debated has been kind of incredible. So I I, I think that politically what we're going to see is more and more explicit arguments about how the United States territorially expresses its power beyond the mainland. And I actually think that's appropriate because I think, you know, part of the frustration for me when writing this book was to see how often these really important issues, issues on which, you know, big episodes in history had actually turned, uh, were always kind of, you know, at the margins of consciousness for most people who lived on the U.S. mainland. And, you know, I think that's got to change. And this conversation helps all of us understand the history behind these issues we will be debating. Daniel, thank you for joining us. An absolute pleasure. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Please share the podcast with your friends, even people who aren't your friends. And remember to visit the Lawfare Store for merchandise. This episode is edited and produced by Jen Pacha Howell. Ian Enright of Goat Rodeo DC Studios is our audio engineer, and Sophia Yan performed our music. As always, thanks for listening.
Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.